Welcome back, everybody, here on Sports Talk. It is game day. That's right. Uh, the El Paso Locomotive uh, back in action. Locomotive FC, big match tonight as they get a chance to battle it out again against uh, New Mexico United. And that means a chance to say hello to Locomotive FC head coach and technical director Mark Lowry for uh, another uh, chat as we get you ready for the big one uh, coming up tonight at Southwest University Park. Coach, first off, we appreciate you joining us, and uh, it's weird. It's been a little bit of a long layoff uh, since the last match, so I know that the rest of the season we're probably going to be seeing uh, a much busier uh, you know, set of games, but have you been able to utilize the extra time off with your club since the last meeting? Yeah, Steve, thanks for having us back. Um, yeah, the, the layoff's been good for us, actually. The, the extra time between the games, it gave us a chance to work on some things and get guys a little bit healthier. You know, we, we came out of the game a little bit banged up. You know, Chiro came off with with some cramps. Foxy, that was his first 90 minutes in a while. So we came out of the game with some soreness and bumps and bruises. So it's given us an opportunity to get those guys back to full health and, and ready to play today. That's terrific, uh, especially since uh, this last matchup against New Mexico United. It was another, it was a weird game, Coach, because the first half was, I know, not, I guess, as crisp as you would have wanted it to be, yet you had a 2-1 lead. You capitalized on two occasions. You went into the locker room, up a goal, and I'm, I'm assuming that as a coach, when you know you haven't played your best football, but you're able to take a lead into the locker room, that's got to be the ultimate. Yeah, you know, the, the, the half, the first probably 10, 15 minutes of the half, um, the first half, we, we played ourselves into some difficult situations. It was our, our own doing. Um, but then, you know, once the guys kind of got, got their composure back, um, we're able to kind of either said, you know, get the lead before half time, and we're in a half time, two and up, and obviously wanted to fix a couple of things, but obviously happy with the score line, and it just shows the resilience of the group. And, you know, I think we finished the game with 22 shots, on goal, you know, plenty of opportunities to score. So all in all, you know, it, it, it was quite good for the second game of the season, and not just the second game of the season, the second game that we played in four or five months. So um, we expect a couple of mistakes early on in games, you know, until people get to full fitness. But I think over the course of the 90 minutes, we're pretty happy with our, our, our you know, workload and, and body of work. It's such a strange game, though, because you played, I thought, uh, terrific in the second half, a lot of attacking, a lot of great scoring opportunities that unfortunately just didn't find the back of the net. And then uh, New Mexico United gets themselves an equalizer on uh, on a penalty kick when it was pretty obvious that uh, there was a, a penalty that was missed where mm -hmm. one of your players goes down just seconds before the referee blows his whistle and uh, United ends up tying the match. Yeah, and I think this is one of those games, one of those sports, maybe maybe the only sport that, that, that can do that to you where you can be on top and, and have all these chances and just one moment or one split second, one decision can kind of turn the game on its head, whether it's a referee decision or an individual decision from a player or a mistake. And, you know, the, the performance, um, like I said, the body of work doesn't always reflect in the final result. You know, I think we did enough to win the game, you know, overall. Um, but like you said, you know, they got that penalty kick and maybe the ref missed a call a few seconds before on us. And that's just how it happens. That's why it's the best game in the world. That's why it's the most exciting. That's why you can't, you know, when, when you when you enter Southwest, you know, ballpark uh, for, for a locomotive game, you know, you better be in your seat with your eyes locked on the field for 90 minutes because you, you walk away for 30 seconds. You can miss a key moment. And, and that's why it's a great sport, though. That's, that's why it's the best sport in the world. That is so true. That is so true. And I noticed in the uh, in the last matchup, you played Marius Lomas uh, towards the end and looking to get uh, a possible game winner in the final moments. We heard going into the season that Lomas is the, the kind of player that could absolutely put the ball in the back of the net and could be a difference maker. Is he someone that you see his role starting to expand as the season uh, moves on? Yeah, it's hard to really project out this season how things are going to go because we haven't had the, the, the seven, eight games of preseason games to get guys ready. So I'm very much using these first three, four games to rotate players to, to get everybody the required minutes they need to get the fitness up because, like I so said, we haven't had the preseason games to do that. So, you know, I expect Marius to be a big player for us this year. You know, he I needed to get Omar 
some minutes in the past game, you know, because um, he hadn't played for a while. He's obviously coming off the suspension. That was very much, we've got to find Omar, you know, minutes, get 90 minutes under his belt because Marius and Aaron did it against RGV. So, mm-hmm. um, basically, there's going to be some rotation these first three, four games. And then after that, we'll see how how things fall. We'll see how form falls on players. If players, you know, which, which players got the momentum, which players health, which player feels good. And, and we'll go from there. But like the first three, four games, you know, you'll see a lot of rotation in players. You'll see, you'll see a different lineup again tomorrow. And, and, and it's just what needs to happen these first three, four games, I think. Mark Lowry with us uh, here, our, our coach's comments as we uh, get you ready for uh, the matchup tonight between uh, Locomotive FC and New Mexico United. Uh, Andrew Fox was named to the um, USL team, all USL team for week four. And uh, you look at you know his production, scores a goal, has some quality shots. Terrific, uh, you know, passing as you'd usually expect from Fox. Uh, you know, eighty-five percent accuracy. Uh, you told us that one of the things you love about him is the ability to to play multiple spots. Uh, he's a great, you know, um, utility man for you, but steps up in big moments. And it seemed like that's exactly what Andrew did in this last matchup. Yeah, Foxy has an ability on both sides of the ball. You know, whether it's going forward and, and creating things with crosses or scoring the odd goal himself, you know, he has a desire and a willingness to do that. And then on the defensive end, you know, he's, he's a fantastic defender. He's, he wears his heart on his sleeve. He gives 100% every game. When you, when you have guys like that in the back line, they very rarely let you down, you know, because they're willing to put their body on the line. They're willing to get in front of things and, and take a hit to the team. So he's just, he's, he's a phenomenal person to have on the team, a phenomenal player to have on the team. And I think this season we're going to see we're going to see more production from Foxy going forward. Um, the way we're using him this season on, on the left side is very much up and down, kind of playing both ways. You know, is um, an attacking threat for us, but he's also a massive, de- you know, defensive asset for us. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be great to see how he progresses throughout the season because we feel like he has the the potential to be probably the best left back in the league, and, and I think you're already starting to see glimpses of that. Coach, who are some of the other uh, players whose performances you were pleased with uh, from uh, your last meeting against uh, New Mexico United? You know, you know, I, I was pleased with everybody in the back line. I thought everyone in the back line did a great job. Um, you know, Richie in there as a six did a great job. And when Yuma came in next to him, Yuma really helped kind of shore things up for us a little bit. You know, made us a little bit more secure in possession. He took care of the ball a little bit better than Distal did. So I thought those guys back there did a great job. Um I'd, I'd like to see a little more from our, you know, attacking midfielders and attackers this game, um, influencing it a little bit more. Um, but I thought everybody in the back line, Logan and, and, and Yuma and Richie, is more of the defensive mining midfielders did a great job in in helping us play out of the pressure. Because New Mexico are a team that like to press us. They press us high. They, they 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 do a good job of that. But I thought those guys did a great job of, of playing out of that, showing the composure and the quality to play out of it. Um, we now need to do a better job once we once we break that pressure is then going and punishing New Mexico. You know, when we create those overloads higher up the field, um, making sure that we, we we do a better job of finishing those moments and, and, and scoring more goals against them because we had a lot of opportunities. You know, and and not just not just in the twenty two shots, but there's probably twenty or thirty other occasions when we didn't get a shot off, which we probably should have. You know, when when you look at the football we played to get into New Mexico's half and then you look when you, when you pause the video back and you start counting numbers, you're like, wow, we're, we're five on four, or we're going six on four here. You know, they're the moments that we need to turn into to, to goal-scoring moments and, and capitalize on those. So, you know, I think we'll see, we'll definitely the forwards do that a little bit more this uh, this game because we worked on that this week. Um, but I thought the back four and Richie and you did a great job of, of getting us out and keeping possession of the ball for us and breaking those lines of pressure. More with Coach Lowry as we continue uh, here on uh, Match Day as Sports Talk rolls along. But first, let's go to Adrian and get this bottom-of-the-hour Sports Center update. 
All right, Adrian, thank you very much. Again, uh, tonight, 7.30, it'll be Locomotive FC battling it out with New Mexico United. Duke Keith will have the call along with Michael Bolligan. It'll be on uh, not just the CW, but also ESPN+. Plus. Excited about that. 7.30 kick as Coach uh, Lowry joins us here on uh, game day as uh, Sports Talk rolls along. Um, you know, it's I'll, I'll mention a name that we, we haven't talked about yet, and that's uh, Omar Salgado. Gets a goal, <laughs> but had other opportunities what he just he couldn't finish and it was tough you could wonder also if it was starting to get to him a little bit because there were some calls gets a yellow card arguing with one of the officials and at times it seemed like his temper was almost getting the best of him where he could have put himself in a position to get uh, tossed out of the match so when you're dealing with somebody that you know has the talent has been great setting up players but clearly you know things are on his mind in terms of not being able to maybe get some some goals through the net how do you figure out a way just to try to keep Omar under control so he doesn't let his his temper get the best of him uh, during the match. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy Omar got that goal. You know, it's something that I know he wants to do a better job of this year. He's made a key goal of his to, to score more goals this season. Um, so I'm glad he got on the end of that cross and, and got his name on the on the score sheet. Um, but yeah, the, the rest of his game is, is just something that we're working on every day. You know, the, his mindset of staying positive and not letting those little moments or those little decisions, you know, that go against him affect affect how he feels, you know, and because he does have the talent, and when he's focused and when he's in the right mindset, you know, he he can be a very very dangerous player, and he is a very dangerous player. So that's just that's just constant communication with Omar. Um, we work every day on it, on how his influence on the field can can expand through the team, you know, how his mindset and and staying positive in key moments of games is, is going to be critical because we always tell him that. As a forward, you never know when that next goal-scoring opportunity is going to come. You just need to make sure you're ready for it. So if you're if you're still worried about the decision the referee made a minute or two ago or, or the miss that, that you had a couple of minutes ago, you're not going to be ready then to, to take the next opportunity that comes. So really with Omar, it's just about staying in the moment, staying focused, not letting little things get to him and, and staying positive. And he's done a better job of that. You can see that he's working on it. And, and I'm proud of the work he's done so far in his development in that area. Because he does have the talent, he does have the ability to score goals and and be a key player for us. And you know, and when he's on his day, you know, when Omar's feeling it and he's positive, then then you can see in his play that he's a very dangerous player. Last time we spoke, we asked you about two of your newcomers, uh, Eded Borelli and also Leandro Carijo, and you told us they hadn't received their visas yet, so they haven't been able to work out with you, and, and they're not obviously ready to play. Has anything changed in that regard since the last time we spoke? Nothing's changed. No, nothing's changed. Um, we'll still be two, three weeks away from that um, happening. So no, we're still we're still without those two. But you know, we're, we're very happy with the team we have, and, and we know we have enough people to go and do the job and get the result tonight. Having New Mexico United for the second time in less than two weeks is is part of the interesting thing with uh, this year's schedule and, and Group C because you had them twice last year. You're going to get them four times this season, but obviously starting off at home with the first two matches before later on moving to Albuquerque, assuming they're allowed to play there. That's also going to be real interesting to see if they'll end up getting their home matches for them or if they're going to have to play exclusively on the road road this season, depending on what goes on with the governor and, and how that works out. Did they deliver, as far as their game plan, what you expected? Was it was it uh, how you had prepared for United, or did they throw some some different wrenches in your plan? Yeah, we expect them to press us. They did it very differently than what we expected, though. They, um, they actually played with a three-back system in the previous game against Colorado, um, so we actually kind of expected that, but they went to a four-back system against us, which which meant they had different, they were different positionally in how they pressed us and the spaces and the distances weren't what we expected. So I think that, that definitely played a part in the first 10, 15 minutes of the game until, until we got to the water break where we could make those tactical adjustments. We were a little bit kind of behind the eight ball because we, we did prepare for something different. We obviously expect them to press us because that's their DNA, that's their identity, they're a team that likes to press. And they know that we're a team that likes to play out from the back. So... We knew they were going to press us. They just did it a little bit differently because, like I said, they, they played a, a different formation, a different system the week before against Colorado. So um, that kind of threw us off a little bit. But like once we got to the water break, and you probably, when you watch, if you watch the game back, well, you noticed it after the water break, 
well, that's when we scored the two goals, right? So mm-hmm. we made those adjustments that kind of allowed us to get our footing back in the game. Um, you know, but that, that's the beauty of this game. You know, you prepare one way and, and, and the other team throws something else. You've got to adjust and then it makes them adjust. It's, it's this constant chess match back and forth. And that's, that's why I love this game so much. And that the 90 minutes, you can see three or four variations of a team throughout the course of the game and, and, and how the game develops and progresses and, and it kind of evolves. Is, is, it's great to see. And when, when you're kind of in the middle of that battle and you're making those strategic moves, it's, it's kind of fun. So it was good what they did. It presented us a problem. I thought we adjusted really well to it. And, and in the end, I, you know, probably could have won the game. I think what's also nice is since you had nine days between both matches, you can now game plan for three backs and four backs. And it's almost as if you'll have that extra time to to go against both formations. So no matter what they try to throw at you tonight, you've got a you've got a plan of attack against it. That's yeah, that's a great point. Those extra days allow you to do that, to kind of formulate two or three different plans, which which can be difficult sometimes when the quick turnarounds between games. So, yeah, we, we definitely feel a lot more prepared going into this game, um, whether that's because of, you know, the extra days we've had or, you know, obviously playing them, you know, and seeing what they're about and having a couple of games now to go off two different systems that they've used. All that data, all that information allows us to feel more confident and more prepared going into the game. And, and you know, we got, but we've got to be ready for anything. You know, the, the, the game can turn its head at any moment. They might throw out a completely different system altogether, and we have to be ready for that. But I think our players now feel a lot more comfortable in that you know this is our third game now we've had another 90 minutes under our belt against them last week we've seen them before so i think we feel a little more prepared coach uh key matchup for tonight give me a match that a matchup you're looking at uh, heading into uh, the game uh, at least on paper that uh, you want to talk about yeah i i you know i, I like the matchup of, of omar against hamilton um in their back line that's that's a matchup that we think we can exploit. You know, Omar's pace always gives you an opportunity. So that's something that we like to look at and try and expose a little bit and, and put Omar in one v one situations um, going against him there. And then you know, their front two of Wiam and Sandoval are very dangerous. So you know, our centre backs, you know, Chiro Mishak and and and, and Richie and Yuma in front of them, kind of blocking the middle of the field there and and and, and stopping those two from getting on the ball. And because I really think that's where they're at the most dangerous is when they when they play through the heart of a team and they go into Sandoval and Wiam's very busy and very lively in those areas of the field, they, could, they can be quite dangerous. So, you know, I like the 1v1 matchup of Omar against Hamilton and then the key area right, right, right through the middle of the field. You know, if we can win those battles in there, if we can overload those areas, then, then we have a really good chance of controlling the game. Terrific stuff. Coach, wish you the best tonight. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back uh, next week before you hit the road for that uh, road matchup against Phoenix Rising FC. Appreciate it, Steve. Thank you. Head coach, technical director, Mark Lowry, joining us uh, here on Sports Talk. We'll come back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to 600 CSPN El Paso. Good to see the music selection for our next guest as we continue on Sports Talk is tailored to the head coach of the UTEP Miners, who told us what he likes, and now that's what he gets. And uh, I'm sure that the Dana Dimmel theme in life has always been life in the fast lane. And yet he, he finds himself in El Paso, head coach of UTEP. But you know what? As long as you're driving in the left lane on the freeway, you're in the fast lane, coach. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And then, and uh, you got to drive fast on 10 just to survive, right? They'll run you That's over. right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, I'll tell you, it's good to have you back. We, uh, we were talking before I brought you on that we're running out of positions, which is good. That's what we wanted to do. And by my calculation, we have three positions left to cover. Is that what you have, or are we off that's the mark on that one? No, nope, that's it. we got three positions, absolutely. All right. Yep. So three That's, three uh, we'll, positions we'll, left. We'll start with uh, we'll start with the. Um, I'm going to save for next week two really good ones and hit the tight ends fullbacks today on Friday. Okay. So um, one that we're really you know feel like the guys that we have at those positions have a chance to be really really good players and maybe. You know, uh, not as well known. Again, we have so many guys that are just brand new, but that's part of turning the program around. Um, 
someone that I'm a huge fan of is Trent Thompson. You know, he's penciled in to be our starting tight end. And Trent, it, through spring, he blocked the C-gap as well as any tight end that we've had com- comparable to the last one I had at Kansas State that blocked it better than anybody I've ever coached. He had a great spring. He's, uh, he's really improved his ball-catching skills. Uh, he's shaping the ball really well in his route running. Um, he's very athletic, bends extremely well. So I'm really looking forward to Trent having a surprisingly good year for us in the offense. We got one of our new addition tight ends in, Zach Fryer. He's been working out. He was from a NIMI, okay, uh, out of um, Sarasota, Florida, and was just a true freshman last year. And we really like Zach's competitiveness, um, his how feisty he was at blocking, how we ran really good routes, but we're like, well, gosh, Dave, he's only 225 pounds, but he's four for three caps. So we're like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sign him and, and, then, and then we'll develop him. Well, he goes home to Florida. He's the one that was putting on Twitter, you know, lifting with makeshift tires on the end of bars. And, and anyway, long story short, he comes back in at 242 pounds, and he is looking huge. I mean, just huge, and can move and do all the things I talked about. So I'm really excited about him. And then Luke Soda is our Bakersfield College tight end that should be here in the next week or so, just finishing up some classroom work that's a big, tall, 6'4 255-pound tight end. So I think we've implemented some real positive additions to that spot. And then fullback is I mean, we got a lot of fullbacks, and we got other tight ends, okay? There's plenty of other guys in the competition, but those are our top three right now. And at fullback, we got plenty of fullbacks, but right now our top two are Forrest McKee, a local product, who's a solid, solid football player, uh, will continue to get better. He's got himself leaned down. He's looking good. We're really trying to put a few pounds back on him, uh, Cap, to get him where we want him. And then... James Tupu is just, uh, we moved him from linebacker last year to fullback. I think he's really, really, really a good fullback. I mean, we can put him out in routes. We can flex him out from the backfield and put him out as a slot receiver, and he runs his routes like a tight end does, even though he's got more of a fullback type of body. So James, I think, has got a chance to be as good as fullback as people can have anywhere across the country. And I feel like our tight end position with those three guys got a chance to be really salty. And then Forrest as well is a really, really good football player. So those five are the five I'm going to talk about. I do want it to be said because, believe me, you you guys would not believe all of my players get this information in front of them. And they want to know, well, Coach, why this, why that? Well, I can only talk about so many guys. I can't talk about everybody. Uh, you know, and it doesn't mean there's still not tons of competition at these positions. So, but those are the five I really wanted to talk about tonight. We can kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about uh, about them as we move forward, guys. Now, I'm curious because uh, in your experience, uh, we've seen the tight end position morph into sometimes guys that are really more uh, pass catchers than they are blockers. And sometimes teams will utilize two tight ends where one is more of like that hybrid wide receiver type and then the other is more of your traditional blocking type. Um, Have you devised offenses with with two tight ends that that do just that? Or do you prefer the tight ends that can do both, can catch the football but can also uh, block? And as you mentioned with Thompson, somebody who was blocking the C-gap for you in the spring. Yeah, we've never really, uh, you know, with all the different things that we've done offensively, I can't say we've ever really used the New England Patriots style, which I'm really, I like, you know, where they would have that big, strong tight end and then they'd have somebody to compliment Rob. You know, the tight end was a great pass catcher, but then they'd have that lighter, less heavy guy that could run a little bit more elusive routes, kind of like an H-back, taller, thinner guy. Uh, like you're talking about. I think it's a great system. I love it. I've just never done it much. And so we've always gone with the traditional tight end, true tight end that can run block well and run routes. You know, we want a guy that can do both. Sometimes we've just 
stuck with guys that block extremely well and and said, hey, if we want to throw the ball, we'll get you know we'll get we'll get into four wides and you're getting the ball to that same position in a different manner or you know get it to our tight ends in various route combinations uh, you know and depending on the skill set that we have at that position you know obviously I coached Robbie Gronkowski for a couple of years at Arizona and the ways we used him were absolutely incredible in the passing game you know but we had Chris Gronkowski as a fullback and so we'd motion Chris out and get Robbie and Chris into some great matchups and stuff so it just depends on what kind of skill set we can continue to develop at the tight end position as we use those spots. For you, as far as you know, developing players at the tight end position, what have you found over the years is tougher? Is it tougher for tight ends to really get the blocking schemes down or to develop themselves as reliable route runners that can catch a football? It's hard to find a tight end that wants to put his nose in there and block, right? And uh, it's the hardest skill set to find. And it was so funny when when uh, when Rob came out, when Gronk came out, they all the pro scouts were calling me and saying, well, Dana, we like the guy at Oklahoma better as a run blocker. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, Robbie can block better than anybody. You know, we just might not be using him that much because we're using him so much in the passing game. And so – I think it's harder to teach a guy to be because, you know, a lot of times tight ends just want to run routes and catch balls. The guy that really separates himself is the one that wants to put his nose in there and get dirty in the run game. So interesting when you start to, to really look at, at the development. Now, I'm fascinated. We loved the, uh, the Zach Fryer videos. I remember, Adrian, yeah. we were talking about that during the show one day because when we saw it, we're like, my yeah. goodness, this is, this is awesome. It seemed like, we're like, yeah. who is this guy and what's he doing? Because it's just, it was just so different than what you normally would find on social media during the pandemic. Yeah, and he looks the part now. I mean, he just looks great. He's, he's developed. It's so impressive because you're like, wow, we're getting this really good football player, but he's not developed enough yet. Now all of a sudden he's super developed, and so we just can't wait to watch him grow in our system. And he works with that kind of effort and and uh, is a good, you know, really good student and all the things you want. And he's got four for three, you know, so he's going to be around here for a while uh, as well. Let's go to Adrian. He's got a couple of uh, tight end questions for you, Coach. Coach, any any thoughts to add a, a grad transfer or a or a you know a junior college transfer in the mix at the tight end position? I know you had Jess Trussell come in real late last year. Is there any thoughts this year? No, there's not. I feel like with Luke Soda, you know, getting here, uh, he gives us that big, strong tight end, and then Zach gives us the real versatile tight end, and then Trent. I think is, I'm a huge fan of Trent, so we've got to keep those three healthy, though, Adrian. You know. Uh, you know, we do have some other guys, like I said, behind them that can do some things. Forrest McKee really can be that off tight end that you guys talked about. He blocks really well with his hand on the ground. So he kind of gives us that when our two tights gives us a fourth tight end type of guy that just has a knack to be able to get up underneath people and drive people off the football and looks real comfortable with his hand on the ground. And then we got Rashad Beecham, another guy that a younger uh, tight end in our program that's still got three years of eligibility to give us some more depth. So I'm just not in the market for grad transfers right now, uh, Adrian, unless it's just at a position that I think is just screaming, you know, for need. You know what I mean? I just feel I see a lot of programs doing it, and I just, you know, I just don't feel that that sometimes they're here and they're gone and, now you're reloading, and I want to try to avoid that unless we just feel like, uh, you know, like we said, if we if we would have found a grad transfer quarterback that was off the charts, we would have taken him, maybe a grad transfer defensive end. Uh, but those were really the only two spots that we were investigating at all for grad transfer guys. Well, speaking of grad transfers, I want to talk about a former grad transfer, one you know real well. And uh, s- since we're talking about the fullbacks and Winston, your son, his season was cut short in the XFL with the Wildcats. I-, I was just, since we're on the subject of fullbacks, I wanted to know what you thought about the XFL season and what uh, what he's been doing this offseason as well to try to get back in the mix. Well, uh, great stories. First of all, his XFL uh, was fantastic. You know, the coaching there was great. He really loved it because he can help coach us in the 
fall and then still make a good amount of money in the spring and compete at a high level. So he loved it. You know, his best friend, his best friend and on the team on the L.A. Wildcats was Larry Rose III. I mean, I thought it was so ironic. But, I mean, you talk about they are like they just became the closest uh, of his buddies. And so that was super ironic that, that a, a minor and a, and a, and a New Mexico State uh, uh, player would become so close. But I thought that was really cool. So, uh, But it was great. It was, it was really gaining some momentum. And, you know, they're going to have something here on August 7th that uh, we're hoping that uh, someone buys the XFL and gets it going. There's been a lot of talk about that happening here on August 7th, a lot of very, very interested people. And if that's the case, Winston would be uh, very much interested in that. But uh, he's doing great. He's trained in Manhattan. Uh, his agent and I and, and him just talked yesterday. Teams are going to cut. A lot of teams are cutting guys, but there's teams that are cutting, but they need fullbacks, and they don't have any. So there's some teams he's still talking to. It might cut some tight ends and pick him up as a fullback. So that's kind of the Coach, update on Winnie and the XFL. I love it. Uh, Coach, we're up at a break. We've got a couple more questions for you. Can we take you back, and we'll wrap things up next segment. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Dana Dimmel coming back as we continue here on Sports Talk. But first, let's go to Charlie One, who's got a traffic update for us. You know, Dana Dimmel's been so good to us over the last couple of weeks. Adrian is returning the favor now, and he is really uh, rolling out some of Coach's favorites uh, here during this uh, segment on Sports Talk as we continue with uh, UTEP head football coach. Uh, so we start with the Eagles. We then go right to Journey. Boy, it's just uh, it gets better and better, doesn't it? I feel like a baseball player coming up to bat, and you guys are playing my songs. I got a little adrenaline flow right there. Good. Well, walk-up music on this program. I like that. I, I really do. Um, so we talked uh, tight ends and, and fullbacks, and that'll leave us with a quarterbacks and defensive linemen for a next week, which uh, we're excited about. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, though, you know, Forrest McKee is somebody that you mentioned local talent, and you're right because he yep. comes from Las Cruces, uh, very highly regarded out of the state of New Mexico when he committed to UTEP, which was big. And, you know, listed at 6'1", 245, you said he dropped a little weight, so you want to put some of that back on. But yep. he does have that size where he could ultimately flex for you at the tight end spot. Um, in your offense, especially with the running backs that UTEP has, how important is it to keep a, a fullback on the field uh, with the Miners' offense? I think it helps. You know, I think some running backs – really like to have that fullback to lead them up into holes and to clear pass for them because they're used to keying off of that. And so some fullbacks do extremely well in the eye offense, and it fits what they do. And uh, so that's where it's important. And, and the versatility of a fullback just allows you to create more angles, you know, and so athletic guys like Forrest and James that can create some angles in their passing and their, and their run blocking, I should say, because Forrest has got himself quicker and more athletic He's going to be able to create some nice little angles in the run game for us that allows for a different type of a skill set from the running back. So I think it's really, really critical to keep that in there. And also what two-back offense does to people at times is it sets them in a certain call, and uh, you can set them in a structure by getting into two-backs where a lot of people won't do a whole lot of variety than two-backs. You'll get in it and it'll, and it'll structure them. You know, I know uh, there was a fullback that played for the Packers, and – Aaron, he stayed on the roster the whole year because he want, Aaron Rodgers wanted this formation, and every time this guy got in this formation, every NFL defense played that certain coverage in front, and Aaron says, put him in, because now I know exactly what front and coverage I'm going to get every snap. And so the guy made it a whole year in the NFL just because Aaron Rodgers wanted him at fullback. So, you know, it's, it, it'll set defenses, and that's the advantage to doing it. A lot of defenses don't can't get too crazy when you have a fullback in the game at times. What made you decide to switch Tupu from linebacker over to fullback? Just that's where he's so much better at. And I just thought when I looked at him, uh, and then he was, you know, he was a running back in high school. and But his tape was so incredible how physical his high school tape was. I'm like, this guy, it's the as most physical hits I've seen on a high school tape of anybody I'd ever recruit had coach because you know we actually didn't recruit 
James, but he was a, you know, a gray shirt when we got here, and uh, he just knocks people around so good. I'm like, so let's pl- play this guy in a position where you can really, you know, bring bring some wood to people, and he does a great job with that. Now you said uh, Fryer has is it um, is it three to play two or or four to play three? Four to play three, Cap. Yep, him and Soto both are like basically like redshirt freshmen coming in. You know, they still got three more years and a redshirt year available to them as well. So they're that's what's really exciting about them. Well, plus, you add Thompson, who's just going to be a junior this season. So ideally, you are setting yourself up at the at the tight end position for the next two seasons. Yeah, I think we are at pretty much every position. If you go across our roster and you look at every position, that's why I've said as good as we're going to be this year, whatever that might be, we'll be even better the year after. You know, and uh, because we've kind of set ourselves up on a two-year table to just keep improving. I mean, uh, we're not going to lose any position. You mentioned about O-line. You know, we'll lose good players, but we won't lose a lot of good players. We'll still have tons of guys coming back the following year. So I'm really excited about the next two years of watching this program grow. Is fullback an, I don't want to call it an easy position to recruit to, but a lot of colleges don't necessarily target fullbacks because it's a specialized position compared to so many other spots of need on a college football roster. So does that make it where uh, you're almost able that if you will take a scholarship on somebody that is highly regarded, but you know, other colleges might feel they can either convert somebody to a fullback spot or, or try and not necessarily offer them one of their scholarships. Does that give you an advantage over other schools? It does because there's a certain body type and a certain skill set that fullbacks have that, uh, you know, only locks them into basically that position. And so now you can kind of get the cream of the crop when you use fullbacks. And um, other people try to uh, morph guys into fullbacks, and it, and it is one of the hardest positions to teach a player to play. Because I kept trying to do it at Kansas State, you know, uh, with other guys. You know, I kept trying to mold fullbacks, and uh, if not to develop depth, you know, because really we had – Chris or uh, Glenn Gronkowski in Winston, and before that, Braden Wilson, who got drafted by the Chiefs, and then you know Glenn and, and, and Winnie that both got a chance to play at the next level. So for three consecutive boom, fullbacks was just ten year trend, nine years or whatever it might have been. We had really, really, really good fullbacks, but I was trying to find seconds, and I'd move guys, and they just you can't teach it. You either have it or you don't. It's really weird, and if you make a mistake, everybody in the stadium knows because their blocks are always where? Right at point of attack, right? So you better be good there because if you miss, everybody in the stadium knows and the ball goes nowhere. So it's really an important position on a team, but we get the pick of the litter because we, we really use that position well in our system. This question on Twitter from at unknowns two forty one. Steve asked Coach what would be his walk up song and what position would he play <laughs> and what kind of hitter is he from one through nine? With it oh, being okay. baseball opening day and stuff, he wants to know. And by the way, okay. he says, Great football talk with coach. Okay. I'm a first baseman. I'm a lefty. I'm a first baseman. I got a really good glove. You know, um I, I I'm not as even wasn't a great power hitter, but I can still, you know, hit solid. My best spot, the bat in the batting order, would be fifth position because I can, you know, I'm not going to drive it out of the ballpark, but I'll get it in the alleys and and uh, and do a good job with that and control the bat well. So uh, that would be that. And then uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, my lead-up song, that's a great question. You know, we talked about my favorite groups. But I think ACDC, you know, Thunderstruck would be the lead-up song for me, uh, you know, when I took the plate. I like it. I like it. I think Thunderstruck is perfect. Good job uh, at Unknowns241 for that question. And by the way, before we wrap things up with you this week, you've got a good baseball story that uh, ties in with your family. Uh, and, and if you wouldn't mind kind of letting our listeners know, I'm not sure. I know I've heard this before, but I don't know if any of our listeners have ever heard this before. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my wife, Julie's dad, you know, is Dwayne Josephson. Was Dwayne, you know, he passed away at a young age at 54. But he was a, a 
catcher for the uh, Boston Red Sox. Started out his career with Chicago White Sox um, in the majors for seven years. Uh, 68 All-Star selection um, in the Astrodome, in the All-Star game in the Astrodome. And it actually was the catcher, starting catcher for Boston and lost his job because of knee injuries and things to Carlton Fisk. So he was a, a really, really good player. So um, somebody that... Uh, the whole family's very proud of. No doubt about it. Somebody that played parts of eight seasons for the White Sox and the Red Sox. And like you yep. said, all-star catcher, which I think is a, a very, very cool story in itself. And uh, again, just goes to show you that uh, baseball bloodlines run deep no matter uh, who you are and where you are. Baseball's always been one of my favorite sports. I'm a huge fan of it with opening day, you know, yesterday. And, uh, you know, I probably know it. A, a ton about baseball, you know, too. You know, I mean, it's one of the sports that I just really, growing up, it was a sport. Every day in Florida, I'd get the newspaper uh, when I was 10, 11 years old, and I'd, Hank Aaron's my favorite player. And my two, I had two bull terrier dogs, and one's name was Hammer, and one name, one's name was Hank. So they were Hammer and Hank. So he was always my favorite player growing up. But baseball's always been a big, big favorite sport of mine. Now, I'm sure you were uh, just a kid, but do you remember when Hank was chasing the babe and had a chance to break the all-time home run record? Oh, yeah, of course I do. When he hit 714 off uh, Jack Billingham, yep, and then uh, 715 off of uh, Al Dowling, number 44, pitching to number 44 to break the record, of course. Very nice. Good job, Coach. Excellent way for us to wrap up the week with you. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, having you back on Monday. When do you start practice with the team? Now, when does practice ramp up? We do. We start walkthroughs today. We actually did wow. walkthroughs today, and um, we um, had a great day. Our first day of walkthroughs, and, and the offense and defense went for an hour and and uh, really got some good work in. So we're going to do it again tomorrow morning, 9 9.30 in the morning, tomorrow morning, we got another walkthrough. So we've started started the walkthrough phase of uh, the next phase of back back to uh, fall camp. So uh, normally we would, we would not be doing walkthroughs right now, but because of all the time we've missed, the NCAA has allowed us to start doing walkthroughs. And so, again, we're right on course. We've got uh, 14 in the next 16 days. Each Sunday will be off, and then August 7th we start up fall camp. Excellent. We're looking forward to it. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you back here uh, Monday at 5. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we'll see you. Head coach Dana Dimmel, the UTEP Miners, joining us on the program. Bottom of the hour. Let's get right back to Adrian. He has this Sports Center update for us. Final countdown here on Sports Talk, which, as you know, each and every Friday means story time. That's right. Tim Haggerty, voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas, joins us for another edition of a story that could be sports-related, might not be, but guaranteed it's probably a tale that you've never heard before and you might never hear again. Here he is, Tim Haggerty, with today's story time. Steve, today we're going to talk about the world's largest ball of twine and the feud over who says they can have that prestigious title. Back in 2005, I was in Cocker City, Kansas. There's a big sign there that advertises the world's largest ball of twine, gave you a clear direction on where to go to see it, and it was cool. It was taller than me. It was massive. It was on this porch on the corner of small Cocker City, Kansas. But uh, in the succeeding research... It turns out there are three other places that claim the world's largest ball of twine, and these four places don't like each other. It's a feud. It's a fight. Um, in Darwin, Minnesota, they claim the world's largest ball of twine, and the Guinness Book of World Records called it the largest ball of twine built by a single person. That's how they claim theirs. Uh, additionally, there is a version in Wisconsin that claims the world's largest ball of twine. Turns out theirs is the heaviest. And there's a fourth one in Missouri that still is the Guinness Book of World Records listed holder. Branson, Missouri, world's largest ball of twine, but it's made out of nylon twine, which they say is a little lighter and easier to wind. Um, surprisingly, there have been <laughs> reporters that a single reporter drove to all four sites to kick some tires on this. And 
the four places have one thing in common. They do not like the other three. But there are actually signs that say these are the world's largest ball of twine. What I mean is a sign for all of them that claims they're number one. Um, but I don't know. They all can't be number one, right? First off, why were you in Cocker City, Kansas in the first place? The reason is um, I had never been to Mount Rushmore. I had a friend who was a news anchor in Nebraska. Um, so a group of friends drove from Nebraska to South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore. But on that same trip, they lived right near the uh, Nebraska-Kansas border. So I uh, was able to just very quickly shoot down to Cocker City. On the same trip, I went to uh, Junction City, Kansas, in which there's a plaque right in the middle of this field because it's the geographic center of the United States. Now, was this before or after you started calling Chihuahuas games in El Paso? Long before. This is uh, 2005. I was living in Mobile, Alabama with the AA team there. Uh, single, no roommates, and just went on this Midwest jaunt in September after the baseball season. Now, what would have persuaded you to even go to the biggest ball of twine in the first place? Were you looking to try to uh, pick up uh, a girlfriend? Was that the idea behind this? What was going on, Tim? You don't think that potential girlfriends would uh, be drawn to that story or that achievement that I had been there? Um, no, I. Uh, the purpose of the trip was to go to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. It was more like I was near this ball of twine. I heard about it. And it was so close, I felt like it was worth it. I mean, for me, Steve, when it comes to evaluating whether or not to visit a massive ball of twine, one hour is my cutoff. We were only 20 minutes away, so I said, yeah, let's do it. It's amazing. I mean, I just, it's like, uh, for example, if I was going someplace, I would never even know that that would even exist. And if I did, I mean, I'm, what are you going to do? You're going to take a picture and you, you look like you're dwarfed on, you know, by this, um, this huge uh, ball of twine. And, and then you think to yourself, okay, you've seen it. You've taken a photo by it. Do you feel the ball of twine? Is that the idea also? You want to feel this to see what it feels like? And then you're probably like, okay, we can leave, right? Yeah, I think it was mostly the, the randomness of it. It was such a specific thing that they're so proud of. There's a sign that tells you all about it. Um, it was, it was massive. It was impressive, but you move on. But also, you know, we really should tip our cap to the effort that these things took. Um, for example, the guy in Darwin, Minnesota, who claims the largest ball of twine, Francis Johnson, he started in March of 1950. He wrapped twine for four hours every day for 29 years, seven days a week. Uh, every August there, they have twine ball day. And this guy was in the Guinness Book of World Records from 1979 to 1994 until Guinness went around, pulled out the tape measure, and took that title away from him. I can't imagine doing something seven days a week, four hours a day for 29 years. Anything. I couldn't imagine doing that. Yeah. Now, Adrian, there's so much to unravel here with Tim's ball hey, of good job on unravel thank you thank you i tried from from cocker <laughs> city kansas when he appeared there 15 years ago um questions are swirling around aren't they yeah they really are and and i go back to the twine ball days festival that tim just talked about how about this tim everybody at this festival could come and add to frank's ball of twine and gradually the idea started to take place that hey people should be able to add twine year round so that's what ended up happening now uh if you go out to this location you can add the twine to uh the, the big ball every day and that's the way it is now so my question to you tim is will you be taking your family back out to cocker city to add to this ball of twine yeah we're gonna pack the car full of twine add to it and get them back to number one um the thing that i took from this guys is i hate to say this but a lot of those signs you see on the road like world's largest xyz i bet a lot of times it's not totally true i mean this just Shows that. I, I know on the baseball side, I've told you guys this story, I think, months ago, but there's at least six different places in the United States that have a sign-up as the home of Babe Ruth's longest home run. 
Mm-hmm. And five of them are wrong if, 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 if somehow we were able to figure that out. But um, that's, to me, what I thought was so interesting here. These are like four official signs, and they're fighting over who's number one. And, you know, it's like when you drive up to Riodoso, what's the um, world's largest pistachio nut in New Mexico there? Which I believe that one, that thing's huge. But who knows? Some of these road signs may be more myth than fact. Hags, when you're in Cocker City and you saw the world's largest ball of twine, did they sell like a mini ball that you could buy and take home and say, you know what, I saw the largest ball of twine. Here's one of the smallest balls of twine, but this is uh, something from, you know, from Cocker City, Kansas. You know, I don't think there was any merch available. It was just sort of this massive ball of twine on a porch um, in a man's yard. It... uh there wasn't much pizzazz to it. Apparently, the one in Minnesota comes with its own museum that charges people $17 to get in there and see it. Conquer City is less about the profit. They're more about, you know, the people. Mm. Um, you know what I, but you know what I did here? You could actually buy twine and add to the ball while you're there. So instead of you taking home a mini ball, you make the ball bigger. That's an achievement. I mean, that's like having your name on the Stanley Cup. You were part of the world's largest ball of twine. Um, that, that's intriguing. Like Adrian said, if I would consider going back, now you're talking. You know, the uh, Wichita is in the Pacific Coast League now, a new Chihuahua's opponent. I wonder, Wichita to Cocker City, how far this is, and if this could be possible. Maybe um, I can call you guys live from the ball of twine, and we can revisit mm. this. It's um, 170 miles. Okay, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's another classic story time with Hags. Now, you've already been to one. Would you like to eventually knock all the four off uh, the list so you can say you've you've been to all four of the... uh, And then when you go, you talk smack and see if you can get them to get upset about the other three places? Yeah, like wear the T-shirt from one of the other places and see what <laughs> see what they say. That'd be great. Um, I I didn't have that desire to go to the other three, but now that we're doing this radio segment, um, yeah, that's worth considering. You know, ones in Minnesota, ones in Wisconsin. I'd imagine those aren't too far apart, being so close to each other. That's possible. The other ones in Branson, Missouri, that would probably take its own trip. Uh, although Branson, I think, is out near the Ozarks, a very scenic area, so it's possible. Hags, thank you for another terrific story time. We loved it, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, chatting again with you right back here next Friday. Okay, sounds great. Story time with Hags, Tim Haggerty, wrapping us up on what's been another great week here on Sports Talk. Adrian and I will be back Monday at 4. Plenty more to cover. Enjoy baseball this weekend, which is back for the first time in in a long time. And uh, we'll get a chance to catch up again real soon. Have a great weekend, everybody.